0: This is Eve Lazarus and you are listening to Cold Case Canada, episode 26, When Cops Were Robbers.
1: Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. The following
0: story is from my book, Cold Case BC. It was five minutes before 5pm on Christmas Eve in 1962. Three men drove into the parking lot behind the Canadian Imperial Bank on Kingsway McMurray, where Metrotown is today. The bank's Burnaby branch had closed two hours earlier, but the men knew that they would find a manager inside and five bank tellers counting the day's Christmas sales. They knew it would be over $100,000 from the Simpson Sears store across the road, the largest deposit of the year. They also knew that the Loomis guards would arrive just before bank closing with a big sack of money, leave it on the counter, and drive away. The driver stayed in the stolen car and listened to the police radio. The other two men got out of the car and went straight to the locked back door. They wore trench coats, tan trousers, dark running shoes, and gloves. One man was six foot tall, the other at least four inches shorter, and as they got closer to the door, they pulled down their ski masks to hide everything except two pairs of brown eyes that were staring out through slits. Within a few seconds, they'd opened the door with a homemade steel key and were inside the bank. Except for the Christmas lights along busy Kingsway, it was pitch dark outside, but if anyone had looked into the large bank windows, they would have seen two armed and masked men holding up the bank. One of the men shouted, hold it, as he jammed his revolver into Mary Dobson's neck. Mary had been counting the money with four other employees, and they all immediately froze. The men had been planning the bank robbery for months. They knew the layout of the building, they knew where all the alarms were, and they knew the exact time that the Loomis guards would arrive with the money, put it on the counter, and leave. But what they couldn't predict was at that moment, bank employee Yvonne Allen would decide to take her break outside. The wheelman wasn't going to let anything stop this robbery. He cocked his revolver and aimed, preparing to shoot her if she looked into the window and noticed the robbery. Fortunately for Yvonne, she did not. The robbers began scooping the piles of bills into canvas sacks they ignored the cash in the tellers' cages and the open vault and took only the 10 and $20 notes. That left about $30,000 worth of silver and small bills behind. They were out the back door and driving away in the getaway car before bank manager William Barber, who was in his office, heard the alarm bell that was tripped after the men had left. In a little over two minutes, the three bank robbers had managed to steal a hundred and six. $1,000. That's the equivalent of just under a million dollars in today's dollars. It was also the largest single haul in the Lower Mainland in more than half a century. The Burnaby Royal Canadian Mounted Police, joined with Vancouver Police, to put up roadblocks around the city. Police checked the airport and were sent to watch train and bus depots, but the robbers were long gone. The getaway car had been stolen several weeks earlier and kept hidden in a garage until it was off the police hot sheet. The car's license plates were exchanged with ones from another car from the Canadian Pacific Rail Depot in Vancouver. After the robbery, they left the car in a hotel parking lot. Six hours later, one of the men returned to pick up the car and drive it to Vancouver's Spanish banks. He stripped off the hubcaps, pulled out the radio, tore off the aerial and slashed the tyres, to make it seem like the work of punks. Six teams of detectives set to work on solving the bank robbery. The Canadian Bankers Association posted a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the bank robbers. The next major robbery came 18 months later. This time it was a Simpson Sears department store on Kingsway, right across the street from the Canadian Imperial Bank, where they'd stolen over $100,000 in the previous robbery. It was 1pm on Monday, June 22 1964, and Reg Keane, a 56-year-old Loomis armoured car driver, was on his way to the bank with a bag containing $88,000. This was from the weekend's receipts that he'd collected from the second floor. His partner, Frank Martin, was waiting in the Loomis truck outside. Keen had just got off the escalator and was heading towards the exit when two men approached him. One threw pepper in his face and the other grabbed the bag and hit him in the face, breaking his nose. Les Visofsky, the store's 32-year-old regional credit manager, was heading for the same exit with two other managers. The former RCMP officer saw the scuffle and leapt into action. Vosovsky went after and fought the taller of the two men. During the scuffle, the robber dropped the bag of money, his 38, a hat and a pair of dark glasses. The two robbers managed to get out of the store and into the getaway car parked just outside, stolen in Vancouver the night before. They took off down Kingsway and minutes later dumped the 1963 Blue Impala in a nearby parking lot where they had another car standing by. Keane was taken to the hospital. A young woman gave police a description of the two robbers. They're in their mid to late 30s. One was about six foot, the other a few inches shorter. Both wore trench coats, dark glasses and hats. The witness took special notice of them, she told police, because she couldn't figure out why they were dressed so warmly. On a summer's day, it all felt remarkably similar to that of the Christmas Eve bank robbery. Once again, the planning was flawless. Police found the stolen car nine hours later. The only print belonged to its owner. The gun that was dropped was traced back to the robbery at Hunter's Sporting Goods store on Kingsway four years earlier. On Friday, January 15th, 1965, One of the men phoned the Vancouver Police Department and reported a break-in at Point Grey Secondary School in Kerrisdale. Knowing that police would take the threat seriously and deploy as many officers as possible, the three men drove to the Bank of Nova Scotia on 41st and Dunbar shortly before 3pm closing. A.R. Knowles, the branch manager, was in his office with a customer when a man burst into his office, told him it was a hold up, and pointed a gun in his face. The men were armed, wore joke shop disguises, false noses, oversized glasses, and moustaches. Both wore dark stockings pulled down over their faces. Besides the man in the manager's office, there are only two other customers in the bank Dr. William Howard Geddes, an 84 year old retired dentist was with his daughter. One of the robbers told customers to lie on the floor and when Gettys was slow to get down, he repeated the order and fired into the ceiling. The second man started pulling out money from the three tellers' cages and put the bills into the sack. Things weren't going nearly as smoothly outside. Ed Smith, a postal worker, was waiting for his wife, a bank teller, to get off work. He saw the driver of the getaway car pull up and backed in near his car in the parking lot. He watched the two men walk into the bank, and through the window he saw one of them go behind the counter, and then he realised he was actually watching a robbery in progress. Smith pulled out from his parking spot and drove in front of the getaway car, blocking its path. The driver got out of the car, waved a gun at him, and told him to get the hell out of there. Smith drove to a phone booth and called police. The driver of the getaway car started to honk his horn. The two robbers jumped in with $13,000 and police were on the scene within minutes. They found the getaway car, this time stolen four weeks earlier, in a supermarket parking lot a block from the bank. A supermarket staffer found an overcoat, toque and false moustache abandoned in the parking lot. Dr Geddes, who already had a history of heart trouble, had a heart attack and died the next day. Meanwhile, Police Chief Ralph Booth and other senior officers were leaning towards the unthinkable that the gang of robbers who knew exactly where and when to hit had inside information from police, or worse, were police. A two way radio worth $1,000 had gone missing from the Oak Ridge substation the previous November and it was thought to have been used in the Bank of Nova Scotia robbery. Booth organised lie detector tests for any police officers who worked or visited the Oak Ridge substation and may have been involved in the theft of the walkie-talkie radio. And while no action was taken against any of the officers, Booth knew by now he was looking at dirty cops. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a Forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park, Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at forbiddenvancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. In 1928, Walter Mulligan was a year on the job and pounding a beat on Broadway between Granville and Main Street. While he was untouched by the police corruption scandal resulting from the Lenny Commission of that year, it would have served the young constable as an interesting introduction into the culture of the Vancouver Police Department and the city's various shady characters. Mulligan soon made detective and had a fairly average career until 1943, when he solved a murder and was promoted to superintendent of the Criminal Investigation Bureau. In 1947, Mulligan went to Mayor Jerry McGeer and told him that police were turning a blind eye to the many brothels and bootlegging joints operating in the city. The mayor agreed, kicked out Chief Constable A.G. McNeil, his deputy, and a number of senior police officers. And at the age of 43, Mulligan became the youngest police chief in the history of the Vancouver Police Department. But by the early 1950s, police were again talking about police corruption and this time they were pointing at Mulligan. It turned out that he was allowing the gambling squad to top up their paychecks with payoffs in return for not interfering with the business of dozens of bookies operating in Vancouver. Mulligan was pocketing half of the proceeds. Mulligan would have likely got away with this, but for Ray Munro, a reporter with the province, Munro was becoming increasingly frustrated that his editors wouldn't let him write about dirty cops, and especially about Mulligan. So Munro quit the province and went to work for a Toronto-based tabloid called Flash. And he started generating headlines like this: "Rape of Vancouver, Munro tears mask from crooked law in gangland Eden." This lit a fire under the police commission, and they formed a royal commission into police corruption, headed up. By Reginald Tupper, the hearing had everything to draw the crowds: corruption, money, power, and sex. And the headlines really picked up after Helen Mulligan's former mistress testified in court. The province's headline the next day was: "Woman said Mulligan gave her a love nest in Langley. She also said Mulligan had given her a diamond ring, some other jewellery, a Chinese teak chest, and most curious of all, a typewriter." Helen had recently married and was never identified. After she took the stand, Mulligan left the hearing, grabbed his wife Violet and fled to the United States, where he became a limo dispatcher. And in the end, just like the Lenny Commission at the start of Mulligan's career, nothing really happened. Tupper said that with the exception of Mulligan, who had fled, and Len Cuthbert, who headed up the gambling squad, and confessed to splitting large sums of bribe money with his boss, he couldn't be sure of anyone's guilt. Only Cuthbert lost his job, and it wasn't for taking bribes. He was fired because he tried to kill himself in an attempt to avoid testifying, and suicide was against police regulations. For anyone who was somewhat shady and looking for work in the mid-1950s, The Vancouver Police Department must have looked like a very attractive place to work. It certainly attracted the attention of Joe Percival, an Ocala prison guard. Percival became a police trainee in 1955, the year of the Mulligan Affair. The following year, he was joined by his brother-in-law, John McCluskey, Len Hogue, and David Harrison, a particularly nasty piece of work from Vernon, British Columbia. George Garrett, a former investigative reporter with CKNW, says the recruits that year were notoriously known as a class of 56. George started work as a reporter for CKNW that same year, 1956. He drove around the city with a tape recorder, microphone and a police scanner. George had missed the Mulligan scandal by just a few months. From all accounts that I've read earlier on, Walter Mulligan was a really good cop to start with and rode through the department, did really good work. And what do you think set him off?
2: He rose probably too fast. He was a very bright person and he did, in fact, uh, rise to the rank of inspector very quickly and from there on up to chief. And I'm sure he rubbed people the wrong way on his way up. Went to his head. And he knew that there was a way of getting money, as you have detailed in your books. (laughs) The Vancouver Police Department over the years was a rotating set of chiefs, and virtually all of them were crooked. But when I came on the scene just after Mulligan in 1956, the city and the attorney general's office were really concerned about the image of the Vancouver Police Department. So they seconded a guy from the RCMP, a superintendent named George Archer, a very austere and class conscious man who considered himself very important, but he did instill a feeling of discipline and training and proper approach to policing. And he really did a lot in a few years to change the culture of the Vancouver Police Department. So as a young reporter, I was just dealing with current things that were happening. And uh, I saw people uh, on the police department who were doing their job diligently and very uh, responsibly and not at all interested in the, the darker side of things.
0: Except for the Hogan and Harrison and Percival.
2: Yes, well, you know, it was an, an ironic situation because Archer had established training program, a recruiting program, and he was very careful with... The people that were chosen as candidates for policemen, they were vetted by a special department that interviewed relatives, interviewed former employers, friends, even neighborhood inquiries, because they wanted to get the best. And in 1956, three or four guys slipped through the crack, and they were turned out to be criminals, really. They did criminal things. It was called, notoriously, the class of 56.
0: 22-year-old Leonard Hoag arrived from Manitoba in 1954 with Irene, his wife of five years, and their two children, Larry and Noreen. They found a small place in East Vancouver and Hoag worked as a driver for Canadian bakeries before joining the Vancouver Police Department. He won a marksman's trophy when he graduated from the academy and in 1961 he made the newspapers after he arrested a murderer on an Oak Street trolley bus. A few years after graduating from the police academy, Constables Len Hoag and his patrol partner Joe Percival found a novel way to supplement their paycheck. They used their inside knowledge to commit an escalating series of robberies. It started small by stealing money from Dairy Queens, it expanded to household breaking and enterings, and it quickly moved up to bigger scores. Hogan Percival approached David Harrison, a fellow graduate of the class of 56, and the three met at an Abbotsford beer parlour to plan their new organisation. They called themselves the Terrible Three. Percival's brother in law, John McCluskey, and Harrison were both stationed at Oak Ridge Police Station. Retired former Vancouver Police Department detective Leon Burke tells me that Harrison had a knack for finding trouble. When did you start with the police force? I
3: started in 58, so I was on for 32 years.
0: What did you finish up as?
3: I was a detective for a number of years. I know Harrison, he worked out at Oak Ridge when I was out there. And he used to get into a lot of problems. With what the what sort of problems? Well, I don't know. He just, he had a thing with, I remember his, he was visiting a girl one time he'd met on the beat and uh, got invited to her place and this was when he was down on Main Street mm-hmm. working a beat down there and he wound up there and while he was at her place her husband came home and he just pushed his way out the door as the guy was coming in and the husband later told the police that it followed it up that he thought it was a postman that was going out because he saw the <laughs> Yeah, he still had his uniform on, but he only had his pants with a red m- line on the side. <laughs> and I was working with Joe Percival. This was somewhere in between the time they were involved in the other robberies, I guess. We drove up past Bull McLean at Georgia and Seymour, I mm-hmm. think it was the time. They had, and uh, he saw this beautiful car in the window. I can't even remember what it was. And he said, you know, I think I just might look at something like that. And I said, oh, yeah, Right. <laughs> Yeah, you could afford that for sure. Did he buy it, do you know? I don't know if he bought (laughs) it. What he was telling me was that he was able to buy it in a way.
0: Are you planning a wedding? Then you're likely in the market for an engagement ring and wedding band that you'll be proud to wear for decades. Erin Haken is an accomplished Vancouver jewellery designer and she has a range of gorgeous rings in stock. But what Erin most loves to do is to work with you and your partner to create your own uniquely designed ring. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code Case. Even before the bank robbery, senior police officers were wondering about Hogue. They were suspicious about a string of unsolved breaking and enterings and the robbery at Hunter's Sporting Goods. The robberies were executed so flawlessly that they suspected insider knowledge. Hogue was one of six officers questioned. Without proof, though, there wasn't much they could do. But they decided to limit the damage and they moved Hogue out of patrol and into jail duty. The move, and the cloud of suspicion did little to slow Hogue down. After the Christmas Eve bank robbery of 1962, he had enough money to move his wife and six kids into a large, new four-bedroom Cape Cod-style home in an upmarket area of Coquitlam. The family now had two cars, a black Labrador called Cindy, and a hamster. The house cost $25,000, with monthly mortgage payments of $150. And while it was more than he could afford on a cop's salary of $515 a month, it wasn't outlandishly so. His neighbours were mostly professionals. There was a doctor, a teacher, a geologist, an engineer and an insurance investigator. The kids attended Montgomery Middle School and Parkland Elementary and Irene Hogue was involved in the Parent Teachers Association and in Cubs. From all accounts, the Hokes were a happy family. When Len wasn't working at the jail or planning bank robberies, he spent his time with his family. Hogue took his children to the Sunday school at Calvary Baptist Church. He played baseball with them in summer and he took them tobogganing in winter. He volunteered with the Boy Scouts and he drove the boys to campouts and helped bundle newspapers for a fundraising drive. He umpired the junior girls' softball team, and by 1965, the Hogue family was well-liked and well-entrenched into the Coquitlam community. What his neighbours could never have guessed was that Hogue, the perfect dad and neighbour, was planning the biggest heist in the city's history, Vancouver's version of the great train robbery. When Percival and Hogue approached David Harrison in 1962, he'd already left the Vancouver Police Department. He'd worked as an officer for the police force in Nelson, British Columbia for a time, but that was short lived and he was back in Vancouver working for a private detective. And when that didn't work out, he got a job as a car salesman. Percival left the force in November 1963 to sell real estate for Block Brothers. He met James McDougall there, who turned out to be a kindred spirit. Percival also knew a CPR police officer who'd worked with him as a guard at Ocala Prison. He told Percival of a 1.2 million dollar shipment of cash scheduled to arrive at the CPR Merchandise Service on West Pender Street. Now, 1.2 million dollars in 1965 was worth the equivalent of $11 million today. This was huge. The cash was old money taken out of circulation by the banks and it was on its way to the Bank of Canada's Ottawa headquarters to be destroyed. The bills were to be delivered to the CPR building by Armoured Car late that afternoon and then taken to a special locked room in the building's basement where they'd be contained in three large grey fiberglass strong boxes. They would then be bound with steel bands and locked. At just after 5 pm on February 11, 1965, the Vancouver Police Department received a call from a man who identified himself as an off duty RCMP officer. He told them that a man was waving a gun around the Hudson's Bay store in downtown Vancouver. The response was immediate. Police units were drawn from all over the downtown area and they sped towards the bay. Exits to the store were covered and a floor-by-floor search carried out, but no one in the store reported seeing a gunman. After about half an hour, the call was put down as a hoax. At 5.30pm, about an hour after the armoured car guards had dropped off the bills, and while the Vancouver Police Department were busy at the Hudson's Bay, four men pulled up at the loading ramp of the CPR warehouse. They were driving a stolen white Chevrolet station wagon with an official CPR sticker on the windshield. The driver stayed with the car. He wore a light brown raincoat, a fedora and heavy horn-rimmed glasses. The other three, one dressed in the striped coveralls and cap of a railway worker, one wearing a CPR police uniform, and the third wearing a blue police-type peaked cap and long blue coat, headed for the office where the money was kept. They knocked on the door. Doug Kuzmicki, the 29-year-old CPR clerk, peered through an observation slot. He saw the uniform and he let them in. Straight away he felt something was wrong because the buttons on the CPR uniform were silver instead of brass. The man wearing the cap told Kazmiki, if you don't do anything, you won't get hurt. They forced him to lie down on the floor, they tied his hands and feet with rope, and they covered his mouth with duct tape. The men grabbed a freight dolly, loaded the boxes onto it, and wheeled it down to the freight ramp. On the way, they passed a young CPR policeman who was new to the force, They exchanged a greeting with him and continued on their way. The boxes weighed more than 300 pounds each and it took all four men to load them into the station wagon they had stolen from the parking lot of the Blue Boy Motor Hotel on Marine Drive 10 days before. The robbery was all over in 15 minutes. They drove to the Hastings Viaduct, transferred the money to other cars and disappeared. What the robbers didn't know was that the bank had recently changed its procedure and cancelled all the bills before shipping them east by drilling three large holes in each one. Straight after the heist at the Canadian Pacific Railway Yard, David Harrison booked it back to Nelson, British Columbia. Len Hoag rented a car to stash the money until things cooled off. Joe Percival and James McDougall grabbed some of the stolen bills and headed for Edmonton. Leon Burke is a retired Vancouver police detective, and he was a constable when the robberies went down in 1965.
3: I'll tell you something that was interesting, though. I remember standing on parade with other police officers in uniform, and before we went out on their beat, there'd be a parade. And, you know, if you are working an afternoon shift, it would be just before 4 o'clock, and uh, there'd be maybe 30 guys standing in parade, and there'd be a sergeant reading the latest information to you before you went out, and behind him was these chalkboards or information boards, and I can always remember earlier, <laughs> there were three composite pictures, I think there was three, three of three individuals, that co- There were composite drawings of those responsible for this CPR robbery. Mm -hmm. And those guys had to be standing on parade watching that each day they would go
0: (laughs) And did no one recognize them?
3: Well, it wasn't that great of pictures, you know. Nobody knew of them being involved in anything prior to that.
0: So no one suspected that they were behind these I don't
3: think they suspected they were policemen. I don't think there was any indication of that at the time they did that hold-up or any of the holdups that the suspects were policemen.
0: Fortunately for Hogue and the other former VPD officers, their disguises were good and the pictures weren't very lifelike. No one recognised them. Although, Hogue's senior officers were taking note that he fit the description of one of the robbers and they were keeping a close eye on him. When Harrison found out that the bills had been cancelled, he phoned Joe Percival and, assuming that his or Percival's phone had a wiretap, he said, Joe, I'm buying a house and there are holes in the roof. What should I do? Percival told him that the holes could be repaired and there was no reason to get rid of the roof. Percival and McDougal thought they had it all figured out. They took a room at the Edmonton Travel Lodge and started to cut sections from some of the $20 notes, patching them together with sticky tape, and then they started spending them. On April 17th, 1965, the two men were having a beer at a pub in Edmonton when an alert bartender took a closer look at the tampered 20s. He called police. Police found $12,000 worth of patched-up 20s and drilled bills in the motel room where they were staying. They also found a loaded thirty-two caliber semi-automatic pistol in a paper bag beside the bed. Police traced it back to one of the twelve firearms taken in the hold-up at the Hunter's Sporting Goods Store in nineteen sixty-one. Len Hoag was at work the next day when he found out about Percival and McDougal's arrest. He phoned Percival's brother-in-law John McCluskey to warn him, because Percival was a former Vancouver police officer investigators had begun to look at his friends, and they zeroed in on Hoag, who was already under suspicion. Inspector Ian McGregor called Hoag into his office and asked him if he'd called McCluskey, who was still with the VPD, but not on duty that day. Hoag said he'd tried, but wasn't able to get through. Asked why he made the call, Hoag told him that it was to advise McCluskey that his brother-in-law, Joe Percival, had been arrested in Edmonton. The conversation took less than five minutes. Hogue was not reprimanded and at that point was not under active investigation. Here's Leon Burke.
3: Shortly after that, I can recall walking up Cordova Street after a shift, and this was after the uh, day shift, so it would be around 3.30, somewhere in there. And Len Hoag was walking down the sidewalk toward me. And as I got near him I said, Oh hi, Len, how are you doing? He he never responded, he was just frozen. His brain was just you know, completely contained I guess in, in the knowledge that he was gonna get charged with this thing. Was this after the robbery had taken Oh yes, place? this was oh. just after Percival Guncock then that that jig was up, you know. And I was shocked to see him like that.
0: How did you know him?
3: I think we came on the job roughly about the same time, not not the same year, but uh, I had worked in the same group that he did, the same squad for a long time in the patrol division. He was a good guy, I, I got to know him uh, a few times, oh, uh, we, I saw him at a party one time I recall, and uh, there were a couple other times I got to talk to him and he sounded quite reasonable, quite a good guy.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just curious with Hoke. did he ever talk about his family?
3: You know what, I saw him one time, I was saying this one little party we were at with a bunch of fellas, and he was there, and he said, uh, I've got to leave. He said, my son's going to a Boy Scout meeting or something like that. Hmm. And uh, he said, i got to go and, and take him there or something to that effect, and I thought, well, way to go.
0: Joe Percival, 37, and James McDougall, 32, they not guilty and a preliminary hearing was set for the following month in Edmonton. The two ex-Vancouver real estate salesmen received bail and promptly skipped town. A few weeks later, the Toronto Insurance Company received a letter postmarked Calgary. Inside, they found 13 cancelled and mutilated Canadian $1,000 bills. Now, just an aside here, I've never seen a $1,000 bill. But in 1965 dollars, that would be worth just over nine thousand dollars today. And it turns out the Bank of Canada stopped issuing them in 2000. An insurance company representative, figuring correctly that the bills were sent by Percival and McDougall, followed their trail to London, booked into a room at the Savoy Hotel, and waited. He was soon contacted by a firm of London solicitors who told him that their clients wished to make a deal for the reward money. They sold the location of the remainder of the mutilated money for $60,000. The insurance company tipped off the Vancouver Police Department that the stolen bills were stashed in a garage behind the Fairfield House apartment block in Victoria, British Columbia. The wife of the caretaker who managed the apartment building had rented the garage for $5 a month to a tall dark-haired man. Police found the bills in three trunks in a suitcase. They also recovered the stolen two-way police radio. It took police almost 12 hours to count the more than $1 million in missing money once it arrived back at the station. Forensics found a fingerprint on one of the trunks that belonged to Percival and the handwriting on the Avis rental agreement was also identified as his. A warrant was issued charging Percival and McDougal with a CPR robbery and the possession of stolen money found in Victoria. The VPDs Bill Porteous and Bob Houghton flew to Scotland to bring them back to stand trial, first for offences in Edmonton, where they were sentenced to two and a half years each, and then on to Vancouver to face robbery charges. In the end, they weren't charged with the robberies, but sentenced to four years in jail for possession of stolen money. While this was going on, police were also busy checking people connected to Hogan and Percival. David Harrison's name quickly came up on their radar. He'd made a number of calls to Percival around the time of the robbery. That September, a police informant named Robert Brooks introduced Harrison to his associate, an undercover RCMP officer known as Johnny Clark. Johnny Clark was posing as a counterfeit money courier for a fictitious underworld kingpin. So, these undercover officers lured Harrison into a room in the Stockman's Hotel in Kamloops, which had been equipped with microphones so they could listen to a deal where Johnny Clark would supply counterfeit money to Brooks and Harrison for $2,000. Harrison told Johnny that he'd met with Percival and Hogue after he left the VPD in 1962 and was at that time working for a private detective. These are Harrison's words from the wiretap, read by Mark
1: Dunn. I'm a wheel man, Johnny. I drive like a kid on it. You've got to believe this. 100 miles a day in a police car in traffic, answering calls. We've had a lot of bad luck lately, but this you've got to believe, Johnny. They'll never nail me for that Burnaby Bank. Never in a million years. There's nothing. 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 I knew nothing. I wasn't in on the months that they were. Those two, Hogue and Percival, worked alone for the longest time, sizing up joints, stealing guns, doing everything. Then they brought me in. I made a fast trip from Nelson, and we met at a pub in Abbotsford to plan the robbery. So the three of us are sitting, Hogue, Percival, and myself, the terrible three. We don't have any other help this time because we started the organization. Percival's the brains all the way, the smartest, most cold-blooded guy I ever met. Harrison said the Christmas Eve bank
0: job was the first time he'd worked with Hogan Percival. His share of the $106,000 was $30,000. Harrison told them he kept a 25 automatic and a 38, loaded at all times, and would blow his brains out if the police ever came for him. He'd given 5000 of his share of the robbery to relatives, spent some on a car and boat, and the rest on gambling and women during a trip to Idaho. Harrison was convicted of the armed robbery of the bank and being in possession of $6,500 in stolen money that he'd given to his girlfriend Marie. Marie testified at his trial that Harrison had given her the money in $20 bills in a brown paper bag. He told her that he'd won the money in a Royal Canadian Legion lottery in Nelson, British Columbia, and could not put it in a bank because he was a policeman and lotteries were illegal. Harrison had introduced her to both Percival and Hoag, and she said the three were close friends. Harrison received 15 years for the CPR robbery. Because he was a former police officer, he was offered protective custody. This is CKNW's George Garrett.
2: They offered to put him in protective custody, which they do for former policemen, and he said, no, I can handle myself. And he was tough enough to handle himself. He was a mean cop on the street, I remember him. Even after he got out of jail, after serving his sentence, he was still a thorn in the side of the police because he was hired by a hotel in Gastown as a bouncer. He could have spot a, a narc, a, an undercover a drug squad officer a mile away, and he would let the drug trade know who the narcs were.
0: Harrison was out of jail in 1970, having served just four years of his 15-year sentence. He died in 1995.
1: If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com
0: Please check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, for more information or just go to my website, evelazarus.com I'll be back next week with Part 2, When Cops Were Murderers.